Hi, Rebels. This Financial Literacy Month, Rebel Girls teamed up with Greenlight, the debit card and money app for families, to bring you everything you need to be smart with your money and to build healthy habits that last a lifetime. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to make smart choices with every penny, whether you're saving for something special or learning to invest. Greenlight gives kids the power to be independent and grown-ups can trust that their kids have money wherever they are. Sign up at greenlight.com slash rebelgirls to get your first month at no cost and start building money confidence for life. Once upon a time, there was a girl who climbed to the very top of the world. Her name was Junko Tabei. Junko was born in 1939, the youngest of seven siblings. Junko was small, and many believed her to be weak. But she had a mighty strength within. As a girl, Junko played on Castle Mountain, which wasn't much of a mountain at all. It was a decaying castle on top of a hill in the town center of Miharu, Japan. In the spring, she could see the vista of the entire town, laced with pink, as the plum, peach, and cherry trees bloomed together. If the weather was nice, Junko's teacher, Watanabe-sensei, would invite the class to eat lunch at Castle Mountain. On one such day, he casually asked Junko's class, Who wants to go to the mountains this summer? Hands shot high in the air, and so an excursion to Nasudake Peak, one of the hundred famous mountains in Japan, was planned. That summer, Junko, Watanabe-sensei, and a few classmates traveled by train, bus, and foot, carrying backpacks stuffed with blankets and food. When the hiking began at Yumoto Hot Springs, they crisscrossed their way along the trail, chattering excitedly. The ground is somehow warm, someone exclaimed. Junko bent down to touch the soil. Yes, this is a volcanic area, so hot water is running underneath the ground, said Watanabe-sensei. Junko was in awe. The next day, Junko laced up her running shoes and hiked Nasudake. There, she was treated to a view from the top that was unlike anything she'd ever seen. Standing on that small summit was enough to show her what lay beyond her hometown. I'm Kit Delorier, and this is Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls a fairy tale podcast about the rebel women who inspire us. This week, Junko Tabei. When Junko applied to Showa Women's University in Tokyo, she envisioned herself as an independent, intelligent, and popular woman. Instead, when she arrived in Tokyo, she found she simply could not fit in. She was embarrassed that her dialect was less sophisticated than the other students, so she wouldn't speak to anyone. 
The girls-only students' dorm was a stern environment where Junko could never relax. Six girls lived together, waking at 6 a.m. with lights out by 10 p.m. Junko's anxiety worsened. The quietest of noises haunted her. If she noticed a dirty mug in the dormitory, she'd obsess over it. She could not sleep through the night, and her appetite disappeared. Eventually, Junko's father came to see her and helped her seek the medical attention she needed. The doctor prescribed time away from the city, so she went to stay at Hot Springs nearby, where she hiked in the forest by herself and wrote in her diary. She used that time to decide what she wanted in life and weighed the importance of her schooling. When she returned to school, Junko would no longer live in the dormitory, and eventually, classmates found her more cheerful. She was even invited on a hike. On her way home that day, she stopped downtown and bought a guidebook called Mountains Around Tokyo. Junko rediscovered her love for the outdoors and began to open up again. Then, with no warning, a telegram arrived. Father passed away. Come home immediately. Despite the pain Junko felt about the loss of her father, she finished her last two years of college in Tokyo. Before graduation, she applied for an editor's position at the University of Tokyo. Of the 200 applicants, she was chosen for the job and started immediately. Any moment that Junko wasn't cooped up in the office, she wanted to spend climbing. So she sought out a mountaineering club that would accept women. Eventually, she joined a group of rock climbers who approached mountaineering differently. They traversed multiple routes up a mountain rather than the singular route to the summit that Junko always used. Junko learned she'd need proper equipment to continue winter climbing on snow and ice. Her paycheck was only enough to cover rent and food with a little bit left over for train travel. Junko had to save money week by week to slowly gain what she needed for mountaineering. On Junko's first trip with her new mountaineering club, she donned a 60-pound backpack. She was determined to prove her worth, despite the stress and nervousness she felt. When she conquered the trail, more members started inviting her to climb with them. One day, out of the blue, a woman named Rumie Sasso called Junko at work, asking her to meet that weekend at Shibuya Station. She had seen Junko climbing on several occasions and wanted a female partner. When Junko got off her train, she was called over by Rumie-san. Junko was delighted to find that the two were of equal stature. They immediately hit it off and made plans to climb together. Roots took longer to climb with a female partner, but somehow Junko felt more rewarded by the accomplishment. Being physically more equal to one another seemed fairer to her. Rumie played an additional role in Junko's life too. She became Junko's closest friend. Usually on Sundays, the roots were full and they had to wait their turn to climb. But on one particular day, 
the place was quiet. Of all the routes to climb, Junko had picked the same one that a man named Masunobu, who was well-known among climbers, happened to be on. Junko had seen Masunobu on several occasions before, but they'd never been on the same trails. Usually, Masunobu sat up front in the more expensive train car. That way, he'd get off the train ahead of other climbers and have the first pick of the climbing routes. When Junko crested the snowy flat top of the route, Masunobu was eating an improvised dessert made from snow and laden with sweet red beans. He had it ready to serve to her as she finished the climb. Junko was amazed that Masunobu would carry something as heavy as a can of beans on a route. After that experience, Junko often ran into Masunobu in various places. She felt humbled by his calm nature and matter-of-fact approach. Despite being an exceptional climber, he never thought less of those who climbed easier routes. More than 100 guests joined Junko and Masunobu in celebration of their wedding. They went climbing on their honeymoon, traveling by train to the very south of Japan, where monkeys jumped from one cedar branch to another. It was bliss. In September 1967, Junko was 28 years old and happy. She shared a deeply satisfying mountaineering life with her husband. But tragedy wasn't far behind. Even after marrying Masanobu, Rumie was still Junko's closest friend and climbing partner. Before the seventh anniversary of Junko's father's death, Rumie called to invite Junko to climb. Junko explained that she would be away, traveling home to visit family, and couldn't make it. When Junko returned to Tokyo, a telegram was waiting for her. Rumie is missing. Come as soon as possible. Masunobu and Junko lost no time changing clothes, packing ropes, and calling all their climbing friends. By the time they arrived, Rumie's mother was already there. Rumie had not yet been found. Junko sat with Rumie's mother while Masunobu joined the search. After several hours of searching, they learned what happened. When Rumie had tried to stop a climber from falling by grabbing her, she was instead pulled off the mountainside and fell as well. By a miracle, the other climber was stopped short when her backpack caught on a tree root. But sadly, Rumie had fallen out of sight. Hey, grown-ups. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Listen, I used to be miserable with allergies from about the beginning of April till the end of August. Sometimes my best friend was a cold washcloth over my face. I couldn't taste my food because my nose was so stuffed up. I couldn't go for a run because my eyes were so itchy. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes, cut the grass, and most importantly, 
Stop and smell the flowers. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. I have to tell you about my friend Penelope. She is hilarious. She only eats cheese doodles and canned beans, and she loves to sing and fly through walls. Wait, did I tell you that Penelope is my imaginary friend? Well, she is, but she's totally real to me. Anywho, Penelope and I are very excited because there's a new movie coming out on May 17 all about imaginary friends. It's called IF, which stands for Imaginary Friends. Pretty cool, am I right? IF is so much fun with lovable fuzzy giants and bright new galaxies. It stars Kaylee Fleming as B, a girl who discovers that she can see everyone else's ifs. Meanwhile, Cal, played by Ryan Reynolds, can also see ifs. Together, they team up and go on a magical adventure to reconnect forgotten ifs with their kids. If is from the brilliant mind of writer-director John Krasinski. It also stars John Krasinski, Fiona Shaw, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Maya Rudolph, John Stewart, Sam Rockwell, Emily Blunt, Aquafina, and Steve Carell, just to name a few. It celebrates the incredible power of curiosity and creativity, and it's definitely a laugh-out-loud adventure for the whole family. If comes out in theaters starting May 17th and is guaranteed to knock your socks off. What? Oh, Penelope says she wears two pairs of socks at all times. Also, that imaginary friends get limitless refills on popcorn. So join us in the theater on May 17th. Bring your imaginary friends too. There was only one solution for Junko. She had to embrace the sadness and begin to climb again. A year had passed since Rumie died, and it was time for Junko to push herself beyond the challenging roots of Japan. On March 5, 1969, Junko met three other female climbers at a coffee shop. The premise of the meeting was straightforward, to plan a women's-only expedition to the Himalayas. They'd call themselves the Ladies' Climbing Club, the mountain of choice, Annapurna Three. It was 7,500 meters tall, the height one needed to climb successfully before taking on the highest peaks in the world, over 8,000 meters. The Nepali government chose one climbing party per mountain per season, and this time it was theirs. Junko flew ahead of her team members to square away the paperwork in Kathmandu and hire Sherpas. The Sherpas were local people who were highly skilled and experienced climbers. They would be paid to prepare the route, fix ropes in place, and carry the necessary climbing equipment up the mountain. After five days of planning in Kathmandu, the Ladies Climbing Club finally chartered two planes, flying west to their destination. When the planes took off, 
The Sherpas moved aside so Junko and her fellow climbers could see the spectacular scene below. In the far distance, three peaks came into view. Annapurna 3 was in sight. Once they progressed up the mountain, snow changed everything. The color green was entirely gone, replaced by a solid sheet of white. Between the snow and the fog blanketing everything in white, the summit felt out of reach regardless of how far they traveled. Technique became even more precise as the ridge they climbed narrowed to a knife edge. There was no room for error. A step slightly too far right or left would mean a fast track to death. As the crew climbed higher, Junko had to tell herself, it's okay, to manage her fears. Then through a brief opening in the fog, Junko saw the summit. They had done it. Next one is Everest, Junko heard a teammate say. She had been considering the same objective since their return. When she went home, she was delighted to hear Masunobu was in support of Everest. He suggested an additional step to the plan for Junko to consider having a baby first. They had planned to start a family eventually, and Masunobu wanted a baby to keep him company while Junko was making history. In March 1971, a few months after they had submitted their application to the Nepali government, Junko became pregnant. She only realized it when she was climbing one day and noticed that she felt heavier than usual. Their daughter, Noriko, was born in February of the following year. Then, in August 1972, the Ladies Climbing Club received official authorization to climb Mount Everest. The news headline, Permission given for Japanese women's Everest spread attention before they even set foot on the mountain. There was a narrow window of time when climbers could conquer Everest safely, and the ladies' climbing club was making good time. They were a month and a half into their climb, setting up Camp 5 on a broad knoll, away from trash left behind by other parties. Junko learned there was a mix-up, and the group arrived short by one sleeping bag. As assistant leader, Junko volunteered to share. That night, Junko's legs were stuffed in the bag with another climber's for warmth, their upper bodies wrapped in down coats. At half past midnight, Junko felt a vibration, heard a deafening noise, and bam, impact. With no warning, several tons of snow and ice suddenly exploded downwards. Within seconds after the avalanche hit, she could hardly breathe. An enormous pressure bore down on her. Confusion set in as she was tossed and turned upside down, the tent whipping around in somersaults. Her mind filled with newspaper headlines. Worst accident ever in the climbing history of Mount Everest. Seven climbers, three journalists, 18 Sherpas, a total of 28 killed in an avalanche. As Junko slipped into unconsciousness, her body was pulled from the snow by a Sherpa and shaken awake. 
Everybody alive? She instinctively asked. Yes, all members safe, the Sherpa reported. The doctor and fellow climbers wanted to radio a helicopter to airlift her out, but Junko wouldn't hear of it. Two nights later, Junko's teammates helped her from the tent, the first time she had been outside since the avalanche, and she managed to walk with assistance. By the third day, she was able to walk on her own. Mem Sahib, Mem Sahib, Tabeisan, I have to talk to you. Ang Sharing, the lead Sherpa, led Junko to another tent. Three Sherpas lay flat out in their sleeping bags, looking grave. We have to get them down due to altitude sickness, he said. The higher the team climbed, the less oxygen was available to breathe. The Sherpas needed to climb down soon and quickly. That means we cannot shuttle enough loads for three people to make the summit assault, he told Junko. When Junko radioed down to base camp with the news, it was decided that she would finish the summit on behalf of the ladies' climbing club. She had experience climbing safely at that altitude level, and she was their best hope of conquering Everest. The next morning, Junko and Ang Sharing left camp, breaking trail in knee-deep snow, which unbelievably became waist-deep. Junko dragged her body up the mountain, and when she arrived, her first thought was, I don't have to climb anymore. The time was 12.30 p.m. on May 16, 1975. There was no higher place in the world than where they stood, and the sensation was tremendous. Junko Tabei was the first woman to summit Everest. Six months after leaving Japan, she finally passed through customs and saw her daughter waiting on the other side. Noriko, it's your mom, Junko said. Grateful for their reunion, Junko took Noriko into her arms. In 1994, Junko invited her favorite teacher to Nepal. Watanabe-sensei had turned 70 years old, and he had one remaining wish, to see the Mount Everest that his student had climbed. Junko wasted no time and chartered a helicopter. The two wiped away tears as they stared down at the grand view of the majestic peak. Junko never would have climbed if Watanabe-sensei hadn't taken her hiking as a girl. They had come full circle. from Ojai, California. I'm Sadie from Nashville, Tennessee. Today's episode was hosted by Kit Delorier. Kit is the first person ever to ski the seven summits, the highest peak on each continent, and a proud mother of two rebel girls. The podcast is a production of Rebel Girls and Boom Integrated, a division of John Marshall Media. It's based on the book series, Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. Our executive producers are Elena Favili, and Joy Folks. This season was produced by John Marshall Cherry, Sarah Storm, and Robin Lai. This episode was written by Joy Folks and edited by Pam Gruber. 
Mighty Roo Proofread. Original theme music was composed and performed by Eletra Barjaki, who has also sound designed this episode. Mattia Marcelli is the sound mixer. Until next time, stay tuned and stay rebel. Can't get enough of Rebel Girls? Well, luckily, the Rebel Girls app is now completely free. That's right, you can listen to the entire library of goodnight stories for Rebel Girls ad-free. Plus, check out the app's cool features like activities, trivia, custom playlists, and more. All parent-trusted and kids-safe. Find out more at rebelgirls.com audio and download the Rebel Girls app today. Thanks for listening.